We've come now to Luke chapter 10 in our series, and we're looking at verse 2. Let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Our Lord God, we've just uh, heard and sung together a song about prayer, and we're coming to part of your Word about that too. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us how to pray, motivate us to pray, teach us what to pray for, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, Luke chapter 10, and we're just going to read uh, from verse 2. Let's hear God's word. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. To the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. If you ever want to humble someone, all you need to do is ask them about their prayer life. I suspect most of us who are Christians, probably all of us who are Christians, know that we should pray, and yet most of us find prayer, at least at times, quite difficult. We get up in the morning to pray and then our mind begins to drift. All the different things we have to do today come into the forefront of our mind rather than the things we should be praying about. It can feel challenging to pray for for most people, I think. And then there are the prayer meetings. Well, we have prayer meetings here at the church, and of course prayer meetings is a good thing, and, and our prayer meetings are wonderful and, and all that. But there can be at least moments in prayer meetings that for the, even the most positive-minded can be a little challenging. I'm sure we've all been to a prayer meeting when someone begins to pray, and you think as you mentally look at, your, at the clock on your wrist, and you think, how long is this going to go on? The guy started at Genesis, he's going to end up in Revelation. This is a long, long prayer. Or sometimes people pray and they start to use a lot of jargon. You know, uh, uh, Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for your, your um, uh, infra, infralapsarian sovereignty over everything. And, your, and, and all, all the, you know, the, the, oh, I'm so grateful that we're justified by faith alone. And, 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 and I suppose I use some jargon just now. I mean, it's hard to get out of it. And yet sometimes when people pray, uh, and jargon can be a kind of shorthand. It's not wrong, but then have you ever wondered when you're in a prayer meeting, who's impressed? Is it me that's impressed or the other people or is it God? I sometimes call it horizontal praying rather than vertical praying. It's a challenge to pray publicly because we're all praying together, so it has to be clear. It's different from praying privately. So yes, prayer, but if you ever want to ask someone, if you want to humble someone, just ask them about their prayer life. That said, by the same token, prayer is a near universal human experience. Even non-Christians, and if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, we're grateful you're with us. We want you to explore the things of the faith. But even non-Christians, the non-religious pray at times. If you ever... If you've ever been in turbulence on an airplane, just look around. 
There are a lot of people praying. I was fascinated to discover that the University of Copenhagen actually did a, a, a set of research during those rather strange days of COVID. And what they discovered was that Google searches for prayer skyrocketed. And the Pew Research Institute discovered that during those days, well over 50% of Americans said they had prayed for COVID to end. I suppose there are some atheists in the proverbial foxhole, but very few. Most of us, when push comes to shove and uh, experience something beyond our ability to control, pray. We seek, as one theologian put it, the ground of our being, or as Alcoholics Anonymous puts it, a higher power. Or as Jonathan Edwards put it, being in general. We sense deep in our bones that there is something or even someone out there that we need to get into contact with. Well, we pray. The eponymous series title, Your Mission Should You Choose to Accept It, made me think in this, is there anywhere in that series where we find the hero Ethan Hunt praying? I'd think not. Perhaps there is. I haven't heard of it. But if he was a real character, I guarantee you that some of the circumstances he's put in would make him pray. And somewhat interestingly, even the stunts that Tom Cruise does, the, the, the actor who plays that character, even those stunts have made one of his directors, John Woo, confess that as he watched, he prayed earnestly. Will we pray? Well, we need to remind ourselves of where we are in our series this morning and just make sure we put it in context. We've seen this each week, haven't we, that the Gospel of Luke has a particular theme. It's written to give us certainty that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. That's the point, in particular, that we might be saved because of it and therefore take that message of salvation to all nations. And this middle section of Luke's uh, Gospel is a section that begins in chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, and along the way, or on the way, Luke constructs his gospel around a series of lessons that Jesus is teaching. And this lesson is all about mission, hence the series, and this week it's all about will you pray? We've seen will you follow, which is an obvious question with an obvious answer, but its answer is challenging because Jesus calls us to prioritize him above everything else. We've seen, will you go, which is not an obvious question, are all really meant to go? And we made a distinction between missions in the plural, where not everyone becomes a missionary, and the mission of God, which we are all called to go on, wherever God in his providence puts us. And now we come this week to, will you pray here? First of all, start with the harvest principle. Luke chapter 10, verse 2, and he, that is Jesus, said to them, the harvest. Because most of us here this morning are not farmers, we're not familiar with what a harvest is. We just hear the word, it doesn't conjure up any particular picture in our mind. 
The harvest is reaping. You sow, you water, you wait, and then there's harvest. You reap. Jesus is saying it's reaping time. And as he sends out his gospel workers, he tells them that not everyone will say yes to their offer of salvation. Some will say no, but either way, it's harvest. And so in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the end of Bible, chapter 14, the harvest is described including those who say no, because in either way, God is glorified. But we, in terms of the story of the Bible, are in the days of harvest. Jesus has come, he's died, he's risen again, sent his spirit, sending us out on mission for the harvest. It's the harvest principle. Yes, it's true, as the Apostle Paul says, uh, some are called to planting or sowing, others called to watering ministries. So some are more pioneer evangelists, some are more called to discipleship. There are different kinds of ministries, and I'm sure those overlap in various ways too. It's not as if the Apostle Paul didn't do any discipleship as well. But while there are different kinds of ministries, all of us are to have the harvest as the end goal in focus. Now, that's a shift in mentality. It's easy for us, I think, to focus on survival, getting through the day or the week, or to focus on our career, or perhaps to focus on family. Or in church circles, to focus on merely ministry maintenance. You see that a lot, I think. Let's just maintain the status quo. But, says Jesus, the harvest. Well, what about the harvest? Second, develop an abundance mindset. The harvest, he says, is plentiful. It's abundant, this harvest. Uh, the harvest was plentiful then, uh, despite persecution. Uh, Luke chapter, uh, persecution, confusion, and division. Despite persecution, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 9, uh, we've just been told in, earlier in the gospel that uh, John the Baptist has been beheaded. Well, Jesus, how on earth can it be a time of harvest for your disciples when well, one of the greatest preachers, perhaps the greatest preacher there's ever been other than Jesus himself, John the Baptist, has just been killed for pointing to you. What on earth do you mean that it's abundant right now? John's just been killed. But yes, the harvest is abundant despite persecution. It's also abundant despite confusion. Luke chapter 9 verse 45. Disciples are very confused. They did not understand what he was talking about. Uh, the saying being his saying about the cross, his death and resurrection. And they did not perceive it. They're very confused. Oh, Jesus, how on earth is it possible that the harvest can be plentiful when your core disciples don't even understand the first principle of the gospel, the cross? And yet, yes, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful despite persecution, despite confusion, and despite division. Luke chapter 9, verse 46, 
Uh, and often division comes from confusion. That's typically the case, and was the case then. Luke chapter 9, verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Of course, if they really understood the cross. They couldn't possibly be arguing about who was the greatest. <laughs> the greatest is the one who dies. Uh, but there was division then, serious division. Well, Jesus, how is it possible that this is a time when the harvest is plentiful, when your disciples are divided at each other's throats? There's a squabble. Surely the harvest is not plentiful then. But yes, it was. It was plentiful. And today, the opportunity to reap, to harvest, is plentiful now, despite persecution, confusion, and division. The harvest is plentiful now, despite persecution. The fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. A very persecuted place, too. The harvest is plentiful now, uh, despite confusion. There's massive doctrinal confusion in Africa and India, and the church is growing very fast there, too. And the opportunity for harvest is plentiful now also, not only despite persecution and confusion, but also despite division. And there's great division in the church in the West, isn't there, these days? But churches that proclaim the gospel center on the gospel itself as a plentiful harvest. Now, I think to persuade you of that case for us today, I need to give you some data. This is a series of statistics that I did some research on for a book that uh, uh, I'm, I'm working towards publishing at some point or other whenever I can manage to find the time to finish it. Um, but this set of statistics that I did research on, my editor told me, was not necessary for the book, so I'm going to share it for you. <laughs> Here they are. The statistics about the state of the church today are more nuanced than a typical viral internet post might suggest. Yes, in 2022, the Public Religion Research Institute reported that, quote, the proportion of those who are religiously unaffiliated has risen to 27% from 16% in 2006. That's a big change. But what is underreported by the same research is it also said, quote, most Americans are still Christians. And uh, it also says, often underreported, I, I don't like these kind of terminology it uses, but I'm just quoting from them. It also says, though, that white, quote unquote, Christian affiliation has declined from 21.3% in 2011 to 13.6% in 2022. It also says, quote, the proportion of Christians of color as part of the United States population remain essentially unchanged from the preceding few years, that is 25% of the country. What is more, much though not all of the attendance decline in the past 50 years resulted from a sharp drop in attendance among Roman Catholics after Vatican II. Uh, it's been a long, long, slow decline. This is research from people called Fink and Stark in a book published by the Rutgers University Press in 2005. And while the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, mostly among millennials and Generation X, gains attention... Little notice has been paid to the other side of the faith spectrum. So a study published in early 2017 shows that, quote, intense religion, that is I-N-T-E-N-S-E, intense religion, strong affiliation, 
very frequent practice. I think it's what I would just call biblical Christianity. That is all persistent. And in fact, only moderate religion, quote, and I think I would just call that unbiblical Christianity, only moderate religion is on the decline in the U.S. This is research from Indiana University, um, Schnabel and Bock from Harvard University in the Sociological Science Journal in 2017. Don't hear that stuff reported, do you? In fact, vitality is found in non-denominational churches. The 2020 U.S. religious census shows that non-denominational congregations increased by, increased, increased by 4,000 since 2010, and rose by 6.5 million in attendance in the same period. That's by a scholar called Burge from the Eastern Illinois University. I wouldn't want to say there's no problem. Clearly, there are problems out there, and we are experiencing pressure, those of us who follow Jesus from uh, the world and the culture, not to follow Jesus. That's for sure true. But the merchants of religious doom and gloom are overselling. They're attempting to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if there is a problem, and there of course are problems always, a problem in essence equals opportunity. That's what a problem is. A problem is an opportunity. Necessity is the mother of invention. Well, if there's a problem, what is the problem? We need to clarify the core problem. What is the problem according to Jesus? The harvest, harvest principle, it's plentiful and abundant mindset. Here's the problem. But there is a problem. What's the problem? The laborers are few. That's the problem. So the problem at its core is a lack of converted, equipped, and activated gospel workers. That's the problem. And remember, we saw last week that this includes all followers of Jesus. That's the 72. You can go back and listen to last week when we made that case. So the core problem, what is the core? I hear all sorts of different ideas about what the core problem these, these days might be for followers of Jesus. The core problem is not lack of churches. More churches without more gospel workers will just create chaos, won't it? You have more false and fake churches. That's not good. The core problem is not culture. Now, of course, there are cultural problems, and, and there, is, <laughs> there is a deep problem in many aspects of, uh, of the culture today. Yes, but tackling culture without more gospel workers will just create rancor and division because it doesn't get to the heart of the matter, which is the heart. Nor, I think, the core problem uh, is the core problem ecclesiology or polity or how a church is structured. You hear a lot of conversation about that. But it seems to me that ecclesiological rules without more gospel workers will just create a new kind of legalism. Rigidity, harshness. At any rate, according to Jesus, the core problem is very clear. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
The core problem, according to Jesus, is insufficient gospel workers, both lay, all of us, as well as, well as clergy or pastors and missionaries. Well, here then, before we come to the actual prayer part of this, just setting the table, believe that Jesus is sovereign over mission. He says here, pray to who? The Lord of the harvest. And I think that when Jesus says the Lord of the harvest, he's referring to himself. And I think Luke is making that point because in chapter 1, he has said the Lord, that is Jesus, appointed 72 others. And so now when Jesus says the Lord of the harvest, I think he surely must mean he himself. But I suppose it's possible it refers to the Lord God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, as uh, the Trinity. Uh, It certainly is possible and that could be right. But I think it means that Jesus is saying that he is sovereign over mission. But either way, God is sovereign over mission, the Lord of the harvest. Now, I know, and many of us here will know, that the sovereignty of God in church circles can be controversial. But the sovereignty of God is intended in the Bible to be comfortable, not controversial. Uh, There's a paper at the back of the church that I wrote some years ago on the sovereignty of God and, and human responsibility that you can read, if you like, on your own time, and it's free and available at the back of the church. Let me just give you a few illustrations that I think will help. Here's one from D.A. Carson, the theologian. He often, in his, the way he illustrates it, he talks about the Apostle Paul in, when he was church planting in Corinth. And there in Corinth, he had a vision of, uh, of Jesus saying to him that Jesus had many people in the city. He's Lord of the harvest. He has many people in the city. God is sovereign over the mission. But Paul's conclusion from that is not, therefore, to go somewhere else. God's in charge. I don't need to do anything. His conclusion is that he gets comfort, strength. He stays the three years and keeps preaching. It's comfortable, not controversial. Or the famous illustration from D.L. Moody that I've used uh, several times over the years. D.L. Moody used to illustrate it this way. He said, imagine there's a great big gate the gate of salvation you have to go through in order to be saved. And on the front of the gate, over the top, it says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And you go through the door of salvation, and then you look back, and on the other side of the gate, after you've gone through, is written another text, which says, For I have known you since before the creation of the world. It's comfortable. gives us security. Or here's a meeting between two people you never think would agree on this, Charles Simeon and John Wesley. John Wesley, of course, famous for being an Arminian, as it's sometimes called, and, and Charles Simeon famous for being a Calvinist, as it's sometimes called. Uh, Charles Simeon describes how in his uh, set of uh, uh, summary of all his preaching called the Horai Homiletikai in the beginning of it, and it's, it's uh, recorded in uh, a biography of uh, Charles Simeon. He, uh, he, he describes how when he was young, he went to see John Wesley. This is what he said. A young minister, about three or four years after he was ordained, had an opportunity of conversing with the great and venerable leader of the Arminians in this kingdom. And wishing to improve the occasion, he addressed him nearly in the following words. Quote, Sir, I understand that you are called an Arminian, and I have been sometimes called a Calvinist, and therefore I suppose we are to draw daggers. 
But before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Permission being very readily and kindly granted, the young minister proceeded to ask, Pray, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put into your heart? Yes, says the veteran, I do indeed. And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Yes, solely through Christ. But, sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? No, I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? No. What then? Are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant in its mother's arms? Yes, altogether. And is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom? Yes, I have no hope but in him. Then, sir, with your leave, I will put up my dagger again. For this is all my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold and as I hold it and therefore if you please instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree the Lord of the harvest gives us great strength particularly to pray fifth therefore be logical and pray Therefore, pray. I, I, the, the, the word here, earnestly, is an addition to the original. Uh, it, there is an, an added word, earnestly, here in the Greek. It, it's a legitimate translation attempt to capture the meaning of the Greek word for prayer, which means an urgent request, pray thee, beg. That's, that's what this Greek word for prayer means. But there's no addition earnestly. The emphasis here is on the logic of it. Jesus is saying, therefore, pray. And even outside of church, uh, prayer sometimes can be seen as logical. Someone gets to the end of the rope and they sit on the side of their bed and they call out to whatever higher power they may be for help. It's the logical thing to do. And of course, inside church, we know it's logical. Uh, Charles Spurgeon famously was once asked the secret of his success by a visitor, his church at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, and he took them to his basement, showed them a prayer meeting taking place, and said, this is my engine room. Therefore, pray. Of course, the Lord is Lord of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray. Of course. Logical. Not pious platitude. Not lip service. Logic. Now, we are a praying church. Uh, Prayer meetings on Monday morning, Wednesday evening, Sunday morning. We have what we call an e-prayer, which is an email that goes out with various prayer requests. Let's pray more. And specifically, let's pray for more gospel workers. What are we to pray for? 
the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. Now remember, uh, this includes all of us. All of us are laborers, uh, all Christians. That's the point of the 72. We made that case last week. And remember that going means witnessing. Jesus himself is coming back and we are to go to witness to him. And remember that to be sent is not mere geographical relocation. To be sent is personal activation at work, at home, and at school. What a difference it would make if everyone at Cottage Church was a gospel laborer. Game changer, for sure. The city of Wheaton would never be the same again. Nor, I think, would Chicago. The exponential impact of us all being gospel workers. Huge. Will we pray? Uh, I was um, fascinated to uh, read in the Wall Street Journal an article on the surprising prevalence and even scientifically beneficial practice of prayer written by someone called Elizabeth Bernstein. She recounted her own experience. She said, I turned to prayer one day last summer, the worst of my life. My father, who had suffered a heart attack and a stroke a few weeks earlier, had had a cardiac arrest in the hospital one morning. She said, I've never been someone who prays much. But as I paced the hallway outside my dad's room while doctors worked for four long minutes trying to jumpstart his heart, a nurse asked if I wanted to pray. There's a gospel laborer in the hospital. A nurse asked if I wanted to pray. I told her how I did, but I wasn't sure how. She took my hand in hers, bowed her head to mine, and began praying out loud for both of us. Dear Lord, we ask for your support. And Elizabeth Bernstein goes on to describe what took place. Will we pray? The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, therefore pray. Will we pray? The harvest is plentiful, therefore we will make a strategic list of priorities. The harvest is plentiful, therefore we will form a subcommittee to discuss and present viable options. The harvest is plentiful, therefore we will have more training seminars. The harvest is plentiful, therefore we will go on more recruiting trips. Now, I, I, I would think much of that, if not all of it, is, uh, are, are viable activities, perhaps even fruitful ones. But none of that is the Lord's command here. The harvest is plentiful, therefore Pray. Will we pray?
I'm going to ask us now to stand with me, if you will, to pray. And we're going to pray not merely to follow Jesus, not merely for us to witness to Jesus here, but we're going to pray that the Lord Jesus would activate and send us and many others to be his witnesses to the world outside and the week ahead. So as we stand together, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much that you are Lord. And yes, Jesus, that is a deep comfort, a strength. Help us, Lord, to remember that. To not think that something else or someone else is truly in charge or has ultimate power, but to remember that it is you, our loving Lord, who is Lord. And Lord, you are Lord over the mission, over the harvest. You have your people here in this city. Would you open opportunities for us even later today? Even as we walk out this morning, someone who's new to the church, who needs prayer. Perhaps some will just be little groups of people praying and encouraging each other through prayer and asking for help from you. Activate us, Lord. At work, at home, in the hospital, if we're a nurse or a doctor. Oh, Lord, the harvest is plentiful. But how few are the workers? Activate us to witness to you, Lord of the harvest. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.